you can say, well, debut mysteries tend to sell. If you if you just threw all debut mysteries into a, a pot and took the average, you know, a spreadsheet not, maybe. Into a spreadsheet, <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're comfortable with spreadsheets <laughs> in this building. Yeah. Yes, okay, one of those. Um, you would come up with a pretty low number. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, two people from one of the most successful book publishers in the world discuss how data plays into their decision to sign an author, publish a book, market it, and hopefully get people to, you know, read actual books. But before we get to that, as always, a number that caught our eye this week, it's the significant digit. Excuse me, can I, can I tell you a number? Tell me a number? Yeah, the number is 49%. Okay. So 49% is the number of respondents to a survey in Boston who said that they don't want the Olympics to come to Boston. It seems high to me, but... I think it's a reflection of the Boston Marathon bombing. They probably don't want more mayhem in their city. That's what I'm thinking. So here we are back in the studio. Walt Hickey, writer for 538. You flagged this survey in your Significant Digits newsletter. 49% of Bostonians don't want the Olympics. Is that woman we heard from, Giselle Noel, uh, what do you make of her theory? Yeah, it's really interesting uh, on just how much people don't want this. Because typically, for a long time, it was seen as a really prestigious thing to get your city name. When Atlanta was going on, they, they looked at it as essentially like a hallmark of the renaissance that the city has gone through, all that kind of thing. Uh, but Boston, B- Boston's kind of swiping left here. There's a lot of stuff going on, but the security concerns, right? That was her, her biggest... Yeah, she went right to the security issue. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that like that's on like a lot of folks' minds. But when it comes to what the folks in the poll actually said, the ones who opposed it were... We're just generally like they said it was generally a bad idea. Uh, like, like if you look at the entire state of Massachusetts, which is what this WBUR survey was uh, across the board, people are really not into it. They generally oppose having the Boston chosen by the U.S. Olympic Committee. And this They're, is for 2024, right? 2024. Yeah. So we're kind of planning ahead here. The security concerns, only one percent of, uh, of people who were opposed to the, uh, the Olympics in Boston. Uh, that's what they cited. They only cited security concerns one percent of the time. But it feels like that maybe there's also a bigger awareness of the fact that things like the Olympics, things like the World Cup, you know, we're living in a post-FIFA scandal world now. There's a lot of people who just kind of realize that, A, it costs a lot of money to get it, uh, whether that's bribes or just building stuff, right? It's a lot to put up with when it's actually happening. Like, you saw Brazil having to get ready for all their stuff. You saw uh, wherever the Olympics take, like Sochi, like that was just a catastrophe to try to build, like, a road across across Russia to, you know, make the Olympics happen. So it's just a logistical nightmare. And then afterwards, your city's in so much debt, how are you going to handle it next? My last question for you is, you know, I'm fascinated by this notion of of things that the public shouldn't be polled about. And this, you know, this is certainly a civic event. And so, yes, the public's opinion matters. But there's also an element of like elected officials do a lot of stuff for cities that they just have a vision and they push forward. And I wonder if 49 percent actually isn't that high. It's like, okay. Slightly less than half of the people don't want it, but we think this is this is big. I mean, if you pulled 
most people about almost any development project. I imagine <laughs> a lot of them would be opposed just because there's basic sort of uh, yeah. nimbyism Nimby, or, yeah. or just intraction. And so that's kind of what I, I want to see more polling on this. So, yeah, should they be pulled on it? I don't know, man. Like, yeah, I feel like people should be asked how they feel about stuff a lot more than usual, right? But the thing that I'm actually really interested in that I would love to see more on is what the deal is with this age difference, right? So, for example, uh, when asked, do you support or oppose the idea of bringing the Olympic Games to Boston region in 2024? 40% of people 18 to 29 said they opposed it. So a minority of people opposed it among the, that age bracket. Then when you go to age 60 and up, it's 56%. So if you're looking at where exactly this opposition is coming from, it, it appears to be a generational thing. Now, is that because the, the old timers kind of say like, okay, we know what happens when a city hosts the Olympics and it sucks? Or is it enthusiasm from the younger crowds? So I, I'm, I'm like, I want to tease out exactly what's going on there. Walt Hickey, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. In the 538 studios, we have Reagan Arthur, senior vice president and publisher of Little Brown, and Miriam Parker, deputy marketing director at Little Brown. Little Brown, by the way, is one of the oldest publishers in the U.S., founded in 1837. Emily Dickinson was published by Little Brown, J.D. Salinger, and a little more recently, J.K. Rowling's first adult novel, The Casual Vacancy, and the memoir from Pakistani activist Malala Yousafzai, I Am Malala. Let's talk about how this very old medium can be informed by new data. Miriam Parker, Reagan Arthur, welcome to What's the Point? Thanks for having us. So let's let's go through the sort of process of publishing and marketing a book from maybe start to finish and sort of talk about what considerations go into there and then of course how data is, you know, informing those decisions. So when you are reading a manuscript or deciding whether to pick up a book, What's that decision tree look like? Uh, it begins with the editor who is sent, uh, generally sent a manuscript by an agent. And so he or she will decide that she, let's say, uh, loves it. Uh, the next stage of the process is getting other reads in-house um, and then going to a formal what we call acquisitions board where a number of uh, representatives of various departments sit. Um, marketing, publicity, sales, editorial, Rights, foreign rights and subsidiary rights. Um, have I forgotten anyone, Miriam? Finance. Finance. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so we all read the proposal or the manuscript uh, in hand at hand, and we decide whether or not we want to go for it. And by ma in making that decision, it's not just a question of, I liked it, I really liked it, I didn't like it so much, but um, what are the comparable titles, how did they sell? And from there, we decide um, how much we think we can pay for it as an advance against royalties to the author. And from there, we try and buy it. So that's like that's stage one. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's important to say that, you know, one of the things we talk about is we talk about platform. You know, we'll look at, you know, what is this person doing outside of publishing a book? And this makes a lot this happens a lot more for nonfiction, but it can happen for fiction as well. You know, are they on social media? Um, do they have a, are they doing speaking engagements? Are they, you know, do they have, you know, connections in the world that are going to make it so that setting up publicity for them is easier or events for them is easier? Um, and those things do factor into our decisions as well. Um, we were talking before about an example of we, this goes into your data um, question. We had a book in um, from a sort of a British celebrity um, and we were wondering, you know, would it translate here? And so we were able to, and 
this is and this is something. Ten years ago, we wouldn't be able to do. We took we took a look at their online platform. She had quite a platform, um, and but we were able to do through a little bit of digging, figure out okay, where are her fans concentrated? And we were able to figure out that really it was much, it was uh, slanted much more towards the UK than the US. She did have fans in the US for sure, um, but it wasn't it, she wasn't the glo- the global celebrity in the US that she that the UK felt that she was. And so we were able to say okay, well you know we're in, we're sort of interested in this, but I think knowing that it's not going to be as huge here as it is there based on. You know who her followers are. We were able to say, okay, we'll let that go to and someone else. And that's happening at the deciding whether to publish the book in the first place, as opposed to we're publishing it now. How do we sell it? Right. Yeah. Well, it, it certainly can happen at that stage too. And whenever I hear us talk about platform, and it certainly, I think, at every panel or sort of publishing discussion I go to, I get a lot of worried questions from writers, like, do I have to have a platform? And so it is exactly true what Miriam said, that the platform matters much more for nonfiction than fiction. And I don't want, I never want people to think like, nobody knows who I am. Um, Will you never, does that mean I'll never get published? So what is the actual calculation you're making about someone's existing platform? I mean, what are the metrics that go into that? It really depends. I think, you know, if we see, um, if we see someone, I mean, we published um, the Food Babe Way last year, mm-hmm. um, and when Vani Ahari came into our office, she had 200,000 Facebook fans, and they were really engaged with her. And we were like, her platform is amazing. You know, she was up to almost a million fans on Facebook again with no, you know, with no advertising, with just passion. I can't think of exactly the the, the politic way to, to phrase this question, but like, why why would someone like the Food Babe who has hundreds of thousands of, t- of Twitter followers and a f- huge presence of their own, a platform of their own, why would they want to publish a book? How does that help them? That's a good question. Um, I think she wanted to um, have a different way to spread her message. You know, there's one thing to do it online through e- through newsletters and through Facebook posts, and there's another, th- it's a whole different thing to publish it in book form, to have it in bookstores. It makes me think, I um, this is not a book that we published, but Stephen King wrote a book called On Writing a couple of years ago that I think about all the time, and one of the things he says in it is that um, being a writer to a reader is the last, is the only form of ESP. You know, he can he can think something in his mind and, and put it, you know, out into your mind and you receive it. And that's, and whether what, what you do with it is another thing, but um, it's ma- it's sort of like magic when you think about it, and that's I think that's why we do this. Uh, we've been nibbling around this question the whole time, but I'm just do you ultimately think book sales can can be predicted? Uh, yes, I think um, in certain cases. When you have an established bestseller, you can you can predict within a pretty comfortable range what his or her sales will be. I mean, it would have to be like a dramatic uh, catastrophe that would cause somebody like Janet Ivanovich or um, Stephen King to go from you know I don't know five hundred thousand copies to fifty like. That would just be unthinkable. But you mentioned one particular genre, uh, upmarket. Upmarket commercial women's fiction. Right. So how does that compare? Are certain genres or markets more reliable in terms of knowing how a book's going to land than others? Well, uh, I would say yes. Um, but sometimes to the to the specific book's detriment. Like you can say, well, debut mysteries tend to sell. If you, if you just through all debut mysteries into a, a pot and took the average, you know, it was spreadsheet not, maybe into a spreadsheet. <laughs> yes, 
Um, We're comfortable with spreadsheets <laughs> in this building. Yeah. Yes. Okay. One of those. Um, you would come up with a pretty low number. And so you have to think uh, publishing is a business built on optimism. And so you have to think, well, yes, that is true that the average mystery debut mystery sells X copies, but we think it'll be X plus Y. So, um, you know, there are there are genre sort of averages that you can consider, but you also have to base it on what what you think about this particular book and what you think about what your what our team can do with that book. And this notion of the platform that an author already has. Does that help the decision or muddle it? Um, it you know, it, it completely depends. My background is in internet marketing, so I think a lot about, you know, what's going on in your Facebook page? What's going on on Twitter? You know, how are you doing on Instagram? But while that's great and we love it when that's that happens, it's for something, especially someone starting out, that isn't necessarily the case. Now, do we can we see seeds of that they would be able to grow because they're, they happen to be quite funny on Twitter. They happen to be, you know, there's one author that we acquired a book of a couple years ago that turned out we were all following him on Twitter because he was just a really funny guy and he was commenting on book publishing. And then when the book came in, we were like, oh, we already love that guy. <laughs> you know? um, but I imagine that there's some people listening to this who are authors who are saying, wow, you know, my potential publisher is looking at my Instagram page. Yes, we are. <laughs> Was that a hard... Not in a creepy way. If it's out there, we'll look. I mean, that must have been a big cultural shift for publishers to sit at that table and say, by the way, this stuff matters. What what counts as influential, if you can put it in numbers, uh, for an author? Um, You know, I... I'm not going to – I don't like to put – I don't like to put numbers on things because I work in book publishing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I really think it's about quality over quantity. I think that if an author has, you know uh, – so an author could have half a million followers, but those people might not be paying attention to them. And we actually can – we can also look at who people's followers are and say, okay, these are the influential ones. And they might not be the ones at the top. I mean, if Whole Foods follows you, that's fine. But Whole Foods isn't going to retweet you, you know. Um, they might seem influential, but that's not – it's not an, a, a – you know, if there's a mommy blogger that has 10,000 fans and they recommend a book that's about parenting, that – the the quality of those fans is much higher. So um, so it is a little bit – there's some alchemy to it to say. I wouldn't say an exact number. I would say more than 200, you know. But um, I think it's, it's about quality. Stephen King, I don't know how many followers he has. It must be millions. Yeah. I mean, I remember the day he joined Twitter and I watched his, his followers right. yeah. just expand like in one day. But he's very generous. And when he tweets about – he's – constantly tweeting about books he loves and i see the responses that it generates and i have to think that sells a few copies and someone like michael pollan in the health space also if he tweets about a book you know we we can see it you know last week we were like what happened to that book that popped i was like i think it might be a michael pollan tweet so it can you know it really can if you again the but if he retweeted stephen king his followers might not be interested right or if his feed was just entirely kind of empty retweeting or plugging of Drek, you know, people would then lose faith. Okay, so you've decided to publish it. What are the kind of main decisions that go into, you know, getting the book to be an actual book? We're publishing... we have a new, an author um, named Ellen Hildebrand. Um, We can say who she is. Um, She's a delight. She writes... um, 
upmarket women's fiction. Um, and uh, set, set on Nantucket. They're great reads, really well written and, and really fun. Um, she's also really fun. Um, she's great on she's great on Twitter. So we we did a couple of things. One was we looked at um, the her website, which we had built for her, and we were like, okay, there's some opportunities here. Of there's some search engine optimization that we could do to get people who are searching for beach novels or um, fun summer reads to get them into her website. We can look at where her fans are around the country and say, okay, it makes sense for um, her to go on tour in the places where um, she has a lot of fans because she's going to get turnout, but those people might already be converted fans. So why don't we also look at some places where maybe it, she seems to be growing? And is that does that data about where she's popular exist only because she's written books before? Or could you, in theory, do that with a brand new author as well? It would be much harder with a brand new author. Yeah. I mean, we, could would... use a, we could use a comp title. Yeah. yeah. Right. So but you, could you look at their Twitter followers and say there's this random pocket of Twitter followers sure. in this yeah. location? Absolutely. And I mean, so if someone, I mean, so actually this morning I was looking at, we're, um, we're publishing Tucker, a Tucker Max book about dating, um, d- dating advice that he, that's coming out this fall. And we were, we were like, well, why don't we just look and see where the, his concentrations of Twitter followers are and, you know, while we're planning his tour. Um, and I noticed he's a lot of fans in Charlotte. Now, Charlotte is not a place that we would normally mm-hmm. Send an author on. We might send an author on tour, but it's not. You know, it's not New York, L.A., Chicago. That you know, and he has fans in those places as well. I'm like, well, maybe Charlotte would be a good place for him to go and see if we get a if we get a crowd. What about when to publish a book? Mm. What goes into that? A few things: uh, availability of the manuscript, um, the season. So. Mother's Day is not a great um, book holiday in terms of sales. Uh, Father's Day is huge. So. People don't buy their mom's books, not but they much. buy their dad's mm-hmm. books. Why? Mm-hmm. You'd have to ask <laughs> Moms, the children. children <laughs> dads. That's fascinating. I, I, my um, unscientific guess is that dads are really hard to buy for. And moms, moms, maybe this mom at least lets it be known <laughs> what she's after. I'm not sure. But, you know, so you'll see a lot of, um, you know, biography, history, uh, dad books, um, uh, perhaps they could be called, coming out in the, month, in the two months leading up to June. That's one example. Certainly, if you have a beach novel, you're going to publish it in the summer. Um, you'll see a lot of um, sort of big commercial books coming out in the sort of fall season leading up to Christmas. Again, great gift books. You can't sell sports books during the Super Bowl. We learned. <laughs> the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning, like, in the Super Bowl season? Or are you actually looking We've, at I mean, that's, Saturday I remember before there the was Super one, Bowl? There was one year where we were like, we're going to do a discount on eBooks on Super Bowl Sunday that are right. about sports. And like, literally nobody bought them. <laughs> it's like, oh, maybe they have other things to do that day. All right, so the book is published. Maybe there's a tour. It goes out into the world. What are the signals that you start to get back about how it's doing? Well, I'll, we just published um, Kate Mulgrew's book a couple of weeks ago, her memoir uh, called Born With Teeth. And um, we put out a call on social media and said, um, take a picture of your book as, you know, as, you've, uh, as you've bought it during the first few days of, of publishing. And so many people sent pictures back. And it was, and it was, 
I know it's sort of a goofy thing. We've never really done it before. I mean, people do it organically, but we'd never quite asked for it. And in seeing that come back, I was like, I think a lot of people are buying this book. And it was completely anecdotal. I mean, we get daily, we do, we do get daily numbers, but we, for some reason, people were really responding to this book. And I but was how feeling, do you trust something like yeah. that? Because it's so easy it's, to build a silo for yourself oh, yeah. and become convinced. <laughs> yeah. This book is huge. You know? Yeah. No, and certainly you can. And uh, and it's, you know, maybe it's an echo chamber of these people are her existing fans. They love her because they watched her, you know, in Orange is the New Black. But um, I don't know. Something about it to me, of the, uh, to that one felt, it felt really authentic. People were really excited to read the book and, you know, were saying, I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm le- not going to work today to read the book and things like that. And when you sort of start to get those really passionate messages back, um, it feels, I don't, it feels good. To, it feels good. I think right before pub is interesting because you can see, you can see signs on Amazon certainly is one way to look. You know, you see a book that was ranked. It's totally normal for an unpublished debut novel to be 30,000, you know, in the days and weeks leading up to publication. But if something starts to bubble and you see it climbing up, um, that's a good indicator that something's happening. Pre-publication sales are really important, right? They're huge. Yeah. 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 And I think also having a lot of books out in the world in the first week that it's out might mean that some people would actually start to read it and talk about it. And one of the things I think we pride ourselves on is that the books we the books that we publish are really good. And once people read them, we word, that word of mouth starts to happen. And that's that's the thing that we really that gets us really excited when we see people organically recommending the book. And this is happening in the movie industry, right? There used to be this notion of you wait for the first weekend sales to come back, and now they talk about how a movie's fate is sealed. You know, after the first people to see it on the fir- on Friday night walk out and tweet about it, mm-hmm. that's what sets the momentum. Mm-hmm. Is it happening that fast in in the book industry? No, not that fast. And I think there is still plenty of opportunity in the book world for books to grow more organically. I'm trying to think of a recent example. Well, we got. I mean, we got a really good review quite after oh, the book came yes, out. Yes. Yeah, and so. You know, it was a book that was, you know, it was a debut mystery. Um, and when Dwight Garner said it was the book of the summer, all of a sudden, so something like that can also send a book off. And you can see that bubbling up that quickly. The next day, you can start to see it. What you know, take me inside the the, the spreadsheet. What are you What are you actually looking at? Um, well, I mean. You know, we I mean, we do we can see the daily sales so we can see, OK, a, you know, a bunch of people went into Barnes and Noble or the Amazon numbers started to go up. Um, we're getting reorders from accounts. And how reactive can you be when something like that happens? What kind of push can you give? Well, ideally, you know, we have books in print. I mean, and I mean, enough books in the warehouse, rather, that we get them uh, into the stores where they need to be. Um, but we also, you know, again, we engage social media immediately, but we can look at other ways to advertise, to promote it's a you know we have to react but we also have to be ready to react so it's kind of like we're constantly sort of poised i hope your industry is one where it there's an inherent intermediary between you and the customer you've mentioned amazon and barnes and noble how reliable is the information you're getting back from those sellers about how a book is doing it's reliable it's very reliable i mean i think we have um it's there are relationships and uh, but we get numbers from um, from Barnes and Noble and Amazon and all our accounts. Yeah. Is there anything that you're not getting from them that you wish you could be getting in terms of information? Uh, Miriam, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, we have um, we get a, a lot of feedback from our accounts about what they want, what works for them, um, what they want less of, what they want more of. Um, if we don't get, you know, minute to minute, um, data from them, you know, we, we know how to work around it. 
and I'll say that in the what's what's different about the age of social media is that we do we are able to communicate with people directly and that you know 20 years ago we couldn't so having twitter you know being on facebook we're able to be out there and, and talking so i think i think that's a, i think it's a great development for publishers but there is some information that amazon can gather because of who they are that you guys just can't do you mean in terms of the customers in terms of who the customers are and how a book is doing yeah like what uh, well, they know who their customers are, and we don't. They know who's buying Nalala from from them, and and we don't. Like demographic information. Yeah, I assume so. If you could sell directly to customers, would you? Well, it's certainly something that's come up a lot over the past, um, you know, years or so, and um, I think that there are a lot of interesting developments that might make that possible. Also, a lot of um, complications that that make it complicated, but. Um, it's something that I think every publisher is is wondering about. I think I mean we're good at publishing books. You know that's what we know how to do. And so having a store is a whole other ball of wax. But you referred to over the last year, this conversation has bubbled up. Presumably, this is the, you know the most people have heard about the Hachette Amazon, which I think probably had a lot to do with using information as a sort of uh, advantage. Right? Amazon has an inherent advantage knowing what they're selling, to whom, and then they can make decisions, you know, and, and maybe apply pressure to publishers? Is that is that kind of the inflection point? Inflection point of? Of the relationship between an Amazon or another online seller and a publisher. Is that kind of their advantage in the marketplace? Uh, it's one of them, for sure, and there are others. But without commenting on what happened in that negotiation, I would say um, – you know the discussions about why don't publishers sell their own books precede that by by a, a good degree, and I think the main point was, is as, as Miriam said, like publishers are, I would say, nimbler than people give us credit for, but also focused on the main business at hand, which is finding and discovering, finding and publishing great writers and selling them to accounts is something that we've also gotten or been good at for decades, but. That other step is something that's interesting and exciting, but also, um, you know, not something that can happen overnight. You know, I, I tend to think that journalism, for instance, which is the world I know, uh, has a lot of right to be concerned and and, pre- and feel pressure to change. But there's also a lot of unhelpful hagiography hey, about the golden age of journalism and getting hung up on on a sort of old model of of newspapers and magazines is the book industry still caught up in kind of what books used to be no um we have no time to be caught up in that and also i don't think books have changed as much as journalism has changed um certainly there are many fewer publishing houses and i think that that is um in many ways a shame you know they've been They've gone now from the big six to the big five, and within those big five are plenty of places that used to be independent publishers. And um, nonetheless, I feel like the main the main thing is that great books are being written, published, and read, um, and that has not changed really. It's just that the ways in which 
they are written, or the ways in which they're read has changed, the ways in which they're sold. I think the main thing is the business is changing. Like perhaps as someone who has to get her kids through college, I'm, I'm, you know, it's interesting to me what we're what we're facing now. But I don't think it's bad. I think it's exciting. The and three I, martini lunches are are done with. Yeah, I came in too late for that. I really missed the boat. Um, so now it's more about just getting my train on time, my train home. But but you referred to ebooks. There was a moment where I felt like ebooks were this big threat. Well, I, it was less about yeah. I mean, it, you couldn't look at what happened in the music industry and not feel some amount of like ah, you know, what does that mean for us? Except for there are so many obvious differences between the way you use and listen to music versus a book. But um, I was interested, you know, four or five years ago in the way that ebooks were being used and self-publishing in uh, in ebook form was being used as a way to kind of vilify traditional publishers who were being called by some, um, oh, I've blocked it out, legacy publishers, mm-hmm. um, which drove me nuts because, um, and then there were a few examples of pub- uh, authors who'd been published by traditional publishers leaving and self-publishing um, and sort of thumbing their noses at the so-called gatekeepers. And, you know, there was this sort of unnecessary us versus them um, warfare that sprang up. And I think um, that seems to have died down. And I think if you want to self-publish, great. And if you want to go with a traditional publisher, great. And it's great to me that there are so many opportunities for stories to be found. But can people still make money self-publishing? I mean, is the war over because the big publishers won the war? No, no, not at all. I think they can make money self-publishing. Many do. And, um, and you know, there are countless websites devoted to success stories and to telling people how to do it. And I think what to my mind, what's what we've learned is that there's room for both. All right, so we've had vampires and we've had zombies, uh, we've had erotica. So what's next? Uh, yes, I was afraid you were going to ask that. <laughs> um, I don't know, Miriam. Have you sensed any burgeoning trends? We have I've a s- protest novel coming out this winter yes. that I think I mean and. and um, we have a book called Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of a Fist um, that is a book that's set during the 1999 WTO protests. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an amazing book and it's told from seven different points of view and they all braid together really beautifully. Um, and I was talking to the author on Friday and I was like, you know, there weren't a lot of protests for a while. And now, I mean, there's one every day. And and we were talking just about, you know, the, you know, the protest culture. And I don't know there's going to be a rash of protest novels, but I will say that I think it's a really important book. And I think that it will feel very contemporary even though it's even though technically it is historical fiction although it's setting historical fiction in a time when i was a cognizant human being seems like seems unacceptable but it it is true so occupy is the next twilight that's what i'm going with nice nice write that down yeah tweet that (laughs) um all right miriam parker and regan arthur thank you so much for joining us thank you Find books from Little Brown in bookstores now. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. 538's podcast and video intern is Asta Chattervedi. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. Get in touch. You can find my email address at 538.com slash podcasts. I'm also on Twitter at Jody Avergan. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the Song Exploder podcast. If you like What's the Point, subscribe using your favorite podcast client. Give us a rating and a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this show. 
Thanks for listening. See you soon.